This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy and wow, do we have an amazing lineup this morning. First up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kerry Breen, AM. Kerry has a list of credentials that make my eyes water. He's a specialist physician, he's past president of the Medical Practitioners Board of Victoria. He's chaired National Health and Medical Research Council committees on ethics. He's a member of the Federal Administrative Appeals Tribunal, and the list goes on and on. Now, you might be wondering what such an illustrious doctor is doing on our downbeat medical show. Well, the answer is APRA the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Authority, of which Kerry is not a fan. It'd be fair to say he'll be telling us why in just a bit. Dr Nick Carr is playing with his microphone, as you can hear, and he's the very definition of a great GP. He manages a busy practice in St Kilda. He gets involved in community projects, loves teaching, and he really, really cares about his patients, of which I am one. He's also no stranger to controversy, which is why I really like him, and I've seated him right next to Lex Judicata this morning. <laughs> Today on the show, Dr Nick will be dissecting the Victorian government's new doctor shopping software that limits people from getting multiple inappropriate prescriptions of addictive medications. And look what the cat just brought in. Blow me down, it's Lex Judicata, our resident legal counsel, an erstwhile pretend doctor. Back from, where was it, Lex? Like Como, Genève, New York? Whereabouts were All it? of those. All of those. Ferenzi. Ferenzi. I was just there too. Lex is the chief legal counsel for one of Australia's leading cultural hubs. Is that fair to say? There you go. Is it with no medical expertise at all? But you did spend 12 years as chief legal counsel to the hospital on the park with a helipad. Correct. Near the sea. Um, and I was allowed to do um, appendices at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, you, Three or four, I think. I mucked up the first two, but the third one was not too bad. You certainly have the confidence to do that, that's for the sure. The third patient lived a week longer than the other two. Lex will be telling us about the good things the Royal College of Surgeons has been up to. Lex, you're in favour of a medical group. How unusual. Plus, our favourite nurse, EpiPen, is in for special comments and some vaccination catch-up. All of this on Melbourne's Triple R Radiotherapy. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you, Mel? <laughs> Lex, you've already said half of the intro, so <laughs> people know you're here. <laughs> hey, Epi, tell us this, the news with uh, this movie called Vax, Robert De Niro, Tribeca Film Festival. Mm. Mm. Mm, very interesting. So, given I'm doing catch-up, so this was an article in Wednesday's Age, yeah. and it's about a film that yeah. um, is going to bring hackles to the back of my neck. So it's a film called Vaxed from Cover-Up to Catastrophe. And the director of the movie and the person who's predominantly written the movie is a man by the name of... Andrew Wakefield. So straight away we will remember that man because he was involved in um, a study that has caused a lot of furor around the globe. Mm -hmm. But I'll just backtrack because I think you need to understand a bit about Andrew and he's Mr Wakefield now and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. So his dad was a neurologist, his mum was a GP. He was the captain of a medical school, his medical school's rugby team. He was the head boy at a private school in England, graduated in medicine in 1981, fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1985. He was a high-profile doctor in the gastro department at the Royal Free in London. Hang on, so he was a surgeon? 
He did do surgical. Oh, okay. He did a surgical gastro training. Okay. Um, and here's a little interesting snippet that I found. At his son's 10th birthday party, he paid $10 to some of the kids at the party to take blood from them for a little oh. bit of research. Okay. wonder what the ethics committee had to say about that one. Well, what one the parents said about that one. So in 1998, he, pub- he, yeah, he published a paper in The Lancet, which is a very prestigious medical journal, um, about the um, l- link between the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and autism. His paper had a small number of children, only 12. They were at the party. <laughs> no, they didn't. They weren't at the party. They were referred to him because by parents because they'd been normal in inverted commas, and then after some vaccines sort of went a bit off the rails, lost their language, had diarrhoea and abdo pain, hence the oh, gastro-referral. So the number in the study was 12? Correct. So why would the Lancet have accepted that? 1998. Yeah. Does that mean they were lax in 1998? He was a big, big knob. He, Twelve, though, in a study. Correct. And they thought that was worth publishing. Well, that's part of the hoo-ha. Well, they mm. published it because of the putative link very, very important, they thought, between um, the vaccine oh. and the onset. Yeah, they believed him and they believed the yes. findings. Yes, and they freaked out and thought this was worthy of publication and mm. letting the world know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so of the 12 children, nine had autism, one had a psychosis and one had a possible post-viral encephalitis. Oh, two of those, sorry, you could add up to 12. So this caused an enormous amount of furor in the medical community. What was going on? And um, so future researchers looked at his results and were unable to reproduce the same results or confirm his hypothesis of the association between the vaccine and autism. Then, So that's 1998. And six years later, a Sunday Times journalist by the name of Brian Deere started on his his journey to work out what the Dickens was going on here and study really what was going on in Wakefield's life or mind. So he had a lab. So Wakefield had his own personal scientific lab that produced secret results that were contradicted in his claims. He also registered a patent claim for his own single vaccine, a measles vaccine at the same time. He was paid more than £400,000 by lawyers to prove that the MMR vaccine was unsafe. So, sorry, this is coming from a a journalist. From a journalist that went and dug around, a bit like the spotlight, looking at So he was paid by a rival vaccine manufacturer to to discredit their competitor. Correct. Yep. And... Um, and he obviously he didn't. He also they've pulled up. He pulled him up because these little kids, twelve of them, had a huge number of investigations, colonoscopies, and all sorts of things, costing a lot of money that were very invasive. So also that what we talked about just a few seconds ago was that he had no ethics approval and hadn't been a, um, yeah okay to do the study. Really, it was, it was a little bit of a it's still sort of published case. in the Lancet. Yes, really? it's still it's a. As Nick said, Dr. Nick said, it's, it, they thought we should really, there's a link here, we should stop the MMR vaccine. Okay. So, um, after, or Brian Deere was really um, instrumental in breaking down this um, Wakefield chap. And in 2010, 
So we're still, we're still. That's another four years later, six years later. The Lancet fully retracted the paper and absolutely said it was fraudulent. Small numbers. It was the. It was totally done without any ethical sort of background or scientific review and they poo-pooed him. But what was terrible is it took 12 years yeah. cool. to do that. That's right. By That's which, what I was just about to say. damage was more than done. Very much so, done. So they'd stopped administering the MMR vaccine? Well, it, cer- it certainly reduced the numbers. Scared so let me just keep going. Yep. Yeah. So in 2010, that same year that, the, that Deere um, exposed him, he was struck off the medical register. He was also barred, well, that obviously means he was barred from practising medicine in the UK. So what's happened because of this study, it's just, and it's lingering, is that it caused a huge decline in vaccination rates in the US, the UK, Ireland, and correspondingly, huge rises in the, in the diseases of measles, mumps, and deaths. And what's happened really, apart from these deaths and um, terrible situation, is it's had this ongoing sort of contributed to the ongoing feeling of distrust of vaccines, mm-hmm. which is probably the biggest dam- damage. So tell us about this, this movie called Vaxed. Okay, so Vaxed is a, it's written by and directed by our friend Wakefield. And it's got, um, it was due to be released in April on the 24th this year in the Tribeca Annual Film Festival, which is run by Robert De Niro. Mm. And Robert De Niro originally supported this film because he has a son with autism. Mm-hmm. And his wife noticed that he was a bit odd after mm-hmm. his, his vaccine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, it was accepted to go on to the film festival. Mm. And then Robert De Niro... Um, pulled it mm-hmm. because a lot of the other film fe- filmmakers in the festival said, "If you mm-hmm. play this film, we're not going mm-hmm. to be part of your mm-hmm. festival." Mm-hmm. And the and the thing about the film is that it it doesn't mention at all about him being debarred. It doesn't mention that his co-authors on the paper withdrew their names, and it doesn't mention at all in the film that there was any investigative. What, um, what about that he was paid money to discredit the vaccine? Well, there's Is that mentioned. No, no. So it's just a case series. It's just, but and what they say this is, is sorry, this is almost as bad as getting it in the Lancet in the first place, mm, isn't it? Exactly. It's a repeat publication. It's a repeat. And one of the doctors that saw it, a cardiologist, said it's a really interesting film. Oh, and one, and another thing is that he's, <laughs> I, I think he's a bit narcissistic mm. because he's an amazing speaker. He really, even if you don't believe what's going on, because of his way of his speech and how he's gentle and mm-hmm. caring, people just fall under his spell. But I think what this, one of the things which intrigues me, although it shouldn't really intrigue me, is that no matter your intelligence, your education, how much you care about your kids, no matter all those things, you can still be taken in by things with no evidence. And I have friends who are really intelligent who query vaccines and this particular link. So so that's why I thought I would ask, why is this still going on? So my things, my theories, and I'd love some further chats about that, it taps into the fears <clears throat> of giving babies injections. They're little vulnerable babies. <clears throat> it's, and it's tough having a child with autism. My sister has an autistic <clears throat> child, so it's a really tough thing to have a kid this way. And it's, we don't have other good explanations at this yeah. stage. So it's, it's, it's very appealing in some way to say this <clears throat> 
awful thing that happened to my child was because of this thing that was done to him or her. Yes, mm. yes. Mm. And, um, and, and the other thing is autism is often diagnosed at the same time you're yeah. having your vaccines, yeah. so yeah. around two, yeah. 18 months to yeah. two. And um, I just and and I think famous people with children with autism, yeah. with their own fears, yeah. it's it's taken off. My daughter was given MMR vaccine twice by mistake at St Thomas's mm. in Paddington in London mm. because they misread her file. They read the file of the woman in the bed next door and said she hasn't had MMR. You've got to have it. Did they know her dad was a lawyer? Well, <laughs> two double double dose. Yeah. yeah. Well, so imagine if that had happened at that time. It's safe. <laughs> yeah, of course it's safe. So, but, and it's, you know. it's just the, it's a highly emotive topic. And when you read the stories of these mums and their babies going for getting autistic, and it's, it's, it's a really, it pulls at all your heartstrings. It's a question that's framed as one of free speech. And this is where I think it's so wrong because I don't think there's any value in free speech about something which is a proven lie. In fact, we did a show a couple of years ago about how to um, get a. Uh, a, uh, a very alternative theory out there is just saying it is free speech. I'm just questioning mm. the data out there, you know, and that is a way of getting it up there. Epi, look, maybe we'll do a, a fuller show on some of these uh, myths, uh, I guess, and what it is that supports them and, and so forth. Fluoride, we can do that. Fluoride. Can I just stand on one little happy sure, note? Sure, sure, sure. So in last year, 219 million children were vaccinated against measles in 28 countries, so that's a big plug for the international immunisation. Do you know what it was at the time of the scare? It was 2019. What was it at the time? When was it at its height, the scare caused by this? Do you know what well, it, it dropped was to? No, I don't have mm-hmm. figures. But it was 1998. Coming up, we'll be speaking with Dr Kerry Breen and his views on APRA. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are joined with Lex Judicata, Dr Nick Carr, Dr Mel Practice, that's me, Nurse Epi Penn, and with us in the studio we have Dr Kerry Breen. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning. Now, Kerry, just tell us a bit about yourself. I know a bit about you because, um, you know, I grew up on reading your books and you know, hearing you speak. Tell us what sort of practice you used to have. I was a gastroenterologist at St Vincent's Hospital for most of my career, but halfway through my career I got this amazing letter appointing me to the Medical Board of Victoria. So I served on the board for 19 years and through that developed this great interest in medical ethics and medical regulation and that led to the book and other things. And I've also served as chairman of the board of the Victorian Doctors' Health Program. So that's left me with a very deep interest in how the profession's regulated and how we look after sick doctors. Yeah, I also saw you on the cover of a book, Shaking Hands, was it with a psychiatrist about medical law, is that right? Was that you? Um, well, in a way, in that um, we set up a, a group called the Victorian Centre for Medical Law that was basically running courses for doctors on professionalism, but yeah. eventually the courses had to close. We didn't have the resources, so we emphasised writing books rather than um, trying to run courses. Which is a bit of a late motif, really, for some aspects of medical education. Now, tell us about APRA. Tell us what APRA actually is and how it is supposed to serve the community. 
APRA is the uh, new national system for regulation of all health professionals set up in 2010 following a report from Productivity Commission and then COAG. Um, it's the umbrella organisation that looks after 14 different boards, including the Medical Board, the Nurses Board and other boards. Um, and it, it, I think I've already said it, it registers, eventually it looks after 600,000 health professionals in, in, uh, in Australia. Hang on, let me just okay. underline that. Six, there are 600,000 health professionals in yeah, Australia? 370,000 nurses, 103,000 doctors chiropractors, osteopaths, optometrists, dentists, pharmacists. That is an astounding figure. That was one fortieth of Australia is, uh, is, a, is a health professional. <laughs> oh, okay, so big organisation. Yeah. And um, this came into being, was it 2011? Uh, 2010. 2010. And tell me, what led to its formation? What was wrong with our, the system before that, whatever it was? Uh, the, the one practical good outcome, the thing that was wrong is that you didn't have portability of registration. If you're registered in Victoria and you wanted to go work in New South Wales, you had to send all your paperwork to the New South Wales Medical Board, and depending on what sort of registration you had in Victoria, you may not have readily got registered there. So it was extra expense and extra trouble. So, mm-hmm. so they basically wanted a national system, and, and other things flowed from that. But, but inside the legislation as well as that, there's a, a, a different sector that allow, section that allows the um, health ministers to control workforce issues. So if there's a, a, a turf dispute between doctors and pharmacists or doctors and nurses that can now be decided by the health ministers and that, that, that's a background issue that's very attractive to bureaucrats so like is it is it do, do um pharmacists now give uh, injections or vaccinations is that right or am i just no i'm completely making that up okay let's move forward i think there was talk of that i don't it's, think it's yeah, happened it yet okay mm. okay so it allows that talk to happen and yeah. then the minister can make a, uh, a decision about mm. that well ministers collectively can make a decision right yeah mm. okay so having national registration is a good thing if doctors want to work in different states that's good having ministers make uh decisions about turf is probably a good thing um so what's bad about it <laughs> what's uh, the problem look i think there are structural issues and and it flaws in the legislation the structural issue is it's a huge bureaucracy and i think six years of experience shows it's a bureaucracy that people have trouble accessing um all of the reviews and there's a fourth review being run by the senate possibly after the federal election, fourth review. Um, they've all uncovered complaints from people who make complaints, from, from doctors and from health services commissioners and other people, about the, the um, difficulty of access and slowness with which the organisation responds to complaints. So hang on, it's had four reviews in, what, five years? Yeah, it will have. The fourth one's scheduled, but it may end up not going ahead because of the double dissolution. Right, yeah. Okay. Now tell us about, can you give us some examples as what you mean that things have been slow? I mean... Oh, um, well... Uh, or bureaucracy. Well, I, mean, yeah, what's... I mean, just in terms of, I don't know what the average time is, but the, many people wait up to a year or so. The complaint will be lodged about a doctor and then nothing's heard for 12 months or so. It, it really is very, very slow Fair from that point of view. Mm-hmm. And how is that different from when we just had, say, the Victorian Medical Board? Well, I think the difference was that the, under the old structure, the board employed its own staff. It, it had total control of the quality of the investigating officers. It knew what they were doing and got things done promptly. Yeah. And, and I think with the new system, the new system, each state medical board is beholden to APRA for the staff that are allocated to it. And it has no control over their work programs or what's put before them. Right. So this isn't serving the community uh, as effectively, say, as the old medical board structure? Well, um, 
on paper and in terms of statistics, <laughs> APRA can, can, can claim they are serving it well. I mean, it, it's how, certain, di- how diplomatic you are, Gary. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the national registration. The national register works. There is a now national law, so the standards of practice should be the same in, in every state, um, and, and that can be said to be a good thing. But then you've got to look behind that, and you've got to look to see what the experiences of each person who makes a complaint is, and what happens to the doctors who have complained against it. And I think that's where the problems lie. Yeah, look, one of the things I was thinking about recently is, you know, that, that case about, uh, was it obstetricians at a, at a rural hospital? My sense of things, and it's just purely anecdotal, is that when we were go- doctors and nurses were governed by a local board, people would find out about that more quickly and there'd be kind of like corridor consultations and it would reach up to a, a governance uh, um, um, institution much more quickly than filter all the way back up to Canberra. That was my sense of things. And it, do, do you think that perhaps... The um, some of the more kind of flagrant um, uh, problems in in the medical profession are due to APRA, or do you think that that's drawing a long bow? Yeah, no, I think that's probably a long bow. I okay. mean, and I don't know enough about it. You, yeah. You're quoting back as Marsh Hospital. I mean, yeah. My sense of that is, here's a small community hospital that became overloaded and couldn't cope. Ah, okay. Mm. okay. And Kerry, for the for the non medics, non nurses, non chiropractors, that 39, 40th of the Australian population out there who are not <laughs> registered under APRA, uh, what difference does it make to them? Does it yeah. does it matter at all to them whether they have a, a local medical board or APRA? Look, it was interesting. I, I had a p- paper published in the Australian Health Review in February, uh, really covering all the stuff I'm talking about, yeah. and that led to me getting emails from all sorts of people. And one was from a very distressed pharmacist who had a difficulty with a client, a customer who was drug dependent, who she had to ask to leave the practice, had mm. to leave the, leave the pharmacy. And it took 12 months, and that, that person complained to UPRA, the pharmacy board. It took 12 months for it to be resolved, and during that time she was forced to have a psychiatric assessment, mm. and the psychiatric assessment found nothing wrong with her. Mm. I mean, that, that's a very distressing story. It's, it's one anecdote, but by golly, it distressed me. So, Kerry, it's really about uh, responding properly, isn't it? Isn't that one of the concerns? It's, it seems to be a bureaucratic organisation. The APRA part, as opposed to the medical board part, is very bureaucratic. And, and you can be left hanging out to dry for too long before the complaint is adequately triaged and resolved. That's one of it. But, but let me give you another example that gives you a, a flavour of what goes on. Um, an obstetrician I know who's very, very um, competent, caring person had a complaint made against her from a woman who, who had a pregnancy and then needed termination. And the issue at stake was communication and, and whether the obstetrician had revealed enough information early on to this doctor. Mm. Now, the the woman complained to the APRA and eventually the medical board dealt with it all by correspondence. No interview of the obstetrician, no interview of the complainant and the obstetrician was issued with a caution. I... uh, She knew that I had an interest in all these things and she talked to me about it and I said, this this doesn't seem right to me. And I looked into it. First of all, they can issue a caution without seeing anyone and that caution is not able to be appealed, you can't take it to a higher level and on top of that when you, when you get the letter saying you've been cautioned the letter says <coughs> that you must tell your employer so it's, it's not a private caution, it's a public does caution Does it go on the website? The no, it do- doesn't go on the website No, it doesn't, it doesn't do that Anyhow, I thought this isn't right so I went to the trouble of running I, I, I de-identified things and took sure. all the documents to four experienced obstetricians and three of the four felt that she'd done nothing wrong and, and we tried to appeal that back to APRA. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote to the chair of the Victorian board and I didn't hear back from him. I got a letter from someone in APRA saying, your, your appeal's been rejected. 
Mm. That's, I thought with natural justice, you should, you, you've got to be allowed to appeal any decision, you would have thought. You'd think so, but that's what the legislature... It's hidden in the legislature. You've got to go to three different parts of the legislation to understand that it's not appealable. Right, yeah. What about for the average consumer of health... Um, services. I thought APRA was a good thing in terms of you can go to a website, check out your doctor or your nurse or whoever and see whether they've got any cautions or conditions about them. Is that the case? Oh, that's probably a good thing, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people bother to go to the website, but, but yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a good thing. Well, what about yeah. doctors who've got been ordered to have chaperones in their consulting rooms? There's no obligation on them to tell the patient why the chaperone's in the room, is there? Yeah. Um, uh, APRA doesn't require disclosure to 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 patients um i i accept you so i, I don't well, the board i, I don't would be, wouldn't yeah. it? it wouldn't be well, the, the, i mean uh, most of the conditions that are applied are eventually applied but each state has a disciplinary tribunal which mm. is independent of the board and in victoria it's the victorian civil mm. administrative tribunal they, they make those decisions and, and i presume that then they could they could put a condition on the doctor's practice mm. to put a notice in the surgery to say why but i don't think mm. they do so mm. Gary, are you saying that probably the prince your one of your principal gripes with the current structure of apra is it just things take too long i think that's a, a, a big issue i think that's yeah. primarily the size of the bureaucracy yeah. i think in addition in terms of um, efficiency i think they probably don't have the right people running the investigations under the old victorian system um, and I, I've been accused by the CEO of APRA of hankering for the past, but some things in the past were quite good. Mm. Um, we employed experienced doctors as the investigating officers. Mm. So mm. they interviewed the complainant and interviewed the doctor and were able to establish quite promptly what the issues were and sometimes they could be resolved by conciliation or, and, and it really wasn't a big issue. And so who, who would a, say I make a complaint against uh, Dr Jill Bloggs? Who's going to investigate that complaint? Um, an APRA-appointed investigating officer of varying backgrounds, and I don't think they've got any medically qualified investigating officers. And often quite junior. Uh, probably, yes. Yeah, that's my experience. And look, and the experience too with a lot of these cases of complaints is they're incredibly complex, and you get a seasoned clinician involved in them, and, you know, they're oh. going to be pulling their hair out trying to figure out which way to go. Well, and, worse, yeah, and then they don't make a decision because it's too hard, and that's why it gets prolonged. It gets bumped up and mm. get bumped up. But, yeah. Kerry, you know, we could speak to you for ages. In fact, uh, I'd, there's so many topics I want to talk to you about. Can I just take one minute to talk about another topic? This, sure. this is a question without notice because I, I read a paper of yours on the web about a no-fault medical indemnity system. Oh, so yes. basically, and I've been saying this for years, it's so much better for everybody. Could you just explain what, what you were talking about in that paper? Well, a current system is totally adversarial. If someone thinks they've been harmed by a medical practitioner, they can sue through the civil courts. Yeah. And that makes every side defensive. The doctor's defensive, the lawyer's angry. Huge amount of money are wasted on the courts and sometimes cases settle, sometimes they go. And they're extremely stressful for doctors. Very and, patients, and patients. Oh, patients as well yeah, and yeah, families. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're benefits that they need can be delayed. There's a yeah. case recently of a poor woman who... Um, was delayed diagnosis of a rare cerebral infection who was left blind and deaf. It took six years for that case to be settled. So there's no resources. So it's, yeah. it's a terrible system. Yeah. Um, and in at least six or seven countries, they now have a no-fault system so that an independent panel decides whether there's harm and whether there should be compensation. And the doctor isn't is able to speak honestly, doesn't have to defend his or her reputation, etc., etc. Now, you... So one of the critics of that is to say, well, you, you, you're allowing bad practice to go on the carpet. 
but of course that can be handled separately. Yeah. You, you've got a compensation scheme which is no fault and handled quickly and you've got a separate system. If people think the doctor's done something wrong, he's put into another path which would be the medical board. So tell but, me, what has to happen for, for that system to become a reality? What do we have to do? Oh, I think all of the profession and interested members of the community just need to lobby for it. Okay. It won't happen. <laughs> well, it's it's too many vested interests. It won't happen. I mean, the, the, it's happened with road accidents, uh, TAC, TAC yeah. and work cover. Yeah. Where you've, but that's not really compensation. That's paying your bills, paying your funeral expenses, paying your house modifications, loss of earnings. But if you really got a serious issue over the threshold, that, that and of course that's the other issue, there's a threshold where you can't sue unless you've got a certain level of impairment. And, um, and so it does prevent... The Wrongs Act does prevent that happening. To that was the so-called tort crisis in two thousand and three, but it it doesn't allow the person who's got massive injuries, other than through the uh, disability scheme, to to get compensation over and above mere their, their mere losses. And you'd have to have a um, a tribunal that was able to do that, and that's big dollars and big expense. And you've got to say, well, would that in fact result in less money because it wouldn't be as well funded as the current system is through the insurers. And ultimately, it's, you know, the VMAA is the major insurer of public hospitals in Victoria, which is the state government, funded by the state government. It's government insurance, and, and they've got very deep pockets. I, I accept all that, but I think a, a really well-funded national inquiry to look at the arguments each side and look at the economics is what's needed. Your lips to God's ears. Kerry Breen, thank you so much for coming on the radio show. I'm sure it's done your reputation no end of harm. <laughs> We're going to stick around and, uh, for the next segment because uh, Lex Judicata will be talking about some stuff which I'm sure you'll uh, have an interest. Thank you. Good yeah, Thanks so much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to 3RRR, it's Radiotherapy. Uh, probably half of the medical practitioners in Victoria are in the studio this morning, including <laughs> Dr Nick Carr. Good morning, Mal. Um, we've got something very, very exciting to talk about today because, uh, curiously, on Anzac Day, and I'm not quite sure why they did it, uh, on the morning of Anzac Day, the uh, state government health minister announced $30 million uh, for a scheme we've been pushing for for years that we've been desperately wanting. Uh, This is for what's called a real-time prescription monitoring service. Uh, And this is all about trying to stop the appalling number of deaths and harm coming from prescription medication misuse. We're talking about the drugs like Oxycontin, Endone, things like that, so benzodiazepines, things like Valium, and even some of the other drugs like Stillnox. These are all medications which people are taking. Uh, some, many people take them perfectly appropriately, but terrifyingly, we now have more deaths in Victoria from these prescription medications than we do from the road toll. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's a, a figure which many people don't understand. So we've been working very hard to try and reduce the amount of this medication that's out in the community. And one of the things that the coroner has called for again and again is for this thing called a real-time prescription monitoring program, which is a way for doctors to look up online when they've got a patient in front of them saying, I need some more of this particular drug, I've run out, I lost them, the dog ate them, whatever the reason is. They can look up online and say, but hang on, you had two prescriptions in the last week already. 
So they have a, and currently we can't do this. Do you know, Nick, what I find astounding, and I'm, you know, obviously in the system, I find it astounding that's 2016, it's just now that we've got a system that does that. That's well, we don't yet have it. <laughs> so this is, this is money to start this system here in Victoria, hopefully to have it in place in two years' time. For pharmacists as well. So this is for yeah. pharmacists and doctors, emergency departments. I was talking to an emergency physician when this was announced, and he said it would be absolutely invaluable because they have a lot of people who roll into an emergency department, obviously may have serious illness or injury, but they can't tell who, are the, if, if you like, the people who are faking it because they just want more drugs, yeah. to be able to go online and find out and say, no, that's, a, that's something you've already had. We're not giving it to you. It would be a very valuable resource for them. Is it, um, is it professional misconduct? To give a doctor, for a doctor to give a patient, say endone, knowing that the patient is addicted to it and is drug seeking, just to get rid of the patient. Well the, well, the important point is the second part of your question: knowing that they're addicted. Because what happens again, and I've been involved in numbers of these cases through APRA, um, and what happens again and again is the doctor says, "Oh, I didn't know," and mm. it's very hard to argue against that. Defense. But I've been to inquests where the coroner has said clearly this doctor did know and I'm referring it to the board. Yes, and, and then they just keep saying, I didn't know, I didn't realise, and mostly nothing much happens. So, absolutely right, it is an offence to prescribe for someone who is a known um, drug addict, but um, in, in reality, <laughs> the APRA process is not very effective so, at dealing with so, that. So, sideways discussion here. So, what do you do if somebody rocks up to your clinic and they're very clearly uh, drug addicted and they're asking you for a script for a drug of addiction, what do you do as a doctor? Well, one of the things I have taught for over 25 years to every GP who qualifies in this state uh, is that if you've got a patient in front of you you've never met before in ambulatory general practice, people who walk in and they say, for whatever reason, they want one of these drugs of addiction, the answer is no. So I think it's a very straightforward... I don't think there's any safe way of prescribing these dangerous drugs for a patient you've never met before. Now, was it you that taught me that um, you've got a line where you say to a patient, I never prescribe these drugs on a first visit? Correct. Which, which encourages people to come back and also clears you for the whole sort of addiction thing. Well, the, the line I actually taught, because you haven't remembered it correctly. But what I actually teach people to say is I never prescribe these medications in this circumstance. And if the, uh, if the patient wants to clarify what the circumstance is, I'm happy to do so. But uh, the interesting okay. thing is the, the true doctor shopper, the person who's been doing it, knows exactly what that means. Uh, but also, they won't stop at uh, your surgery. It's the subtext. Well, th th this gets into a slightly different argument, but it's, uh, to me it's about uh, someone who's looking for these drugs knows that the doctor shouldn't give it to them, so they know that the prescription of the drug is a bad thing, uh, but on the other hand, they want the doctor to do the wrong thing to get what they want. If you do the right thing, they actually respect that. And uh, I, I think they're addicted, have, aren't they? They've got an they addiction. They are addicted. So they want their drug, but they also respect the person who does what they know is actually the right medical thing. And there's research to show that. But do you offer them treatment for the addiction? So you're, you're asking about people who are, in the technical sense, what are called pre-contemplators. These aren't people looking for help. So helping people who are just looking for drugs, it's like an alcoholic at the bar who just wants another drink. That person isn't interested in referral to an alcohol counselling service. Perhaps the best person to talk about, I think we've got online now, uh, someone who knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, I hope we're talking now. Rusty, are you there talking to us? 
I'm there listening. Yes, hello. Oh, hi, Rusty. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, perhaps you could just give a, a quick explanation for those listening why we're talking to you. Well, uh, certainly. I um, <clears throat> When I was 16, I had pain in my lower back, and I went to a GP who gave me Valium and Panadine Ford, I think, and um, and that started off something for me, and that um, I didn't stop taking those until I was 47 or 48. Just say that um, again, that you started at 16 and you carried on yes. for how many years? Um, 32 or 33 years it was. And what sort of thing were you taking? Well, certainly benzodiazepines, and in the end I had ended up having three lots of surgery on my back, and, and I had any type of opiates that you can think of, um, endone, oxycontin, morphine, pethidine. Um, and to be clear, were yeah. you just taking these sensibly as doctors prescribed to manage symptoms? What, what was the pattern of your medication use? Certainly, certainly in the beginning I took them as prescribed, um, but as time went on the opiates weren't working as well, um, so my intake went up a bit. Actually, that went up quite a lot over the years. And the benzodiazepines I used as prescribed, but again, with those, as the years went on, I ended up taking more than I was prescribed. Now, we were talking earlier about the number of deaths that occur from these drugs. Mm. Uh, clearly, that didn't happen to you. <laughs> You're now not taking them, I understand. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but there are other harms, aren't there, from these medications out in the community. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly for me, I'm, and I understand the deaths from the ingestion of these things are horrific. But for me, it was... Uh, and when I, I didn't realise what benzodiazepines were doing to me until I came off them. And um, I, it's only now that I realised I was living a very shallow, hollow sort of existence. Um, it was like I was walking around with no soul. Yes. And I just... There was no edge to life. And you, you had a child while you were taking these medications? I do, yes. Uh, I did. I became pregnant while I was on these things. And the worry and... It's interesting, the worry about that made my um, intake go up and it was horrific. It was the most awful time of my life being addicted while I was pregnant. And, and then and I've met, I've, met the, I've met the gorgeous Harry, who's a teenager now, but tell me what you think the impact of these medications was on, on him. Well, certainly, um, being on so much medication, I was emotionally blunt, therefore not totally emotionally available for him. Um, and so that, and of course, that had an enormous effect on the child. Um, he has problems focusing and learning. Mm. Um, and certainly, it, um, as a child of an addict, he has that, that feeling of not being loved, totally loved. So these are not statistics that turn up anywhere in these death figures and that sort of thing, but real harms that come. And in 32 years, did a doctor ever say no to you for these medications? No, not really. Certainly people uh, attempted to help, like with detoxes and things like that, but I've always, always had them. Just ha and I think took them because I took them. And, and I honestly think that doctors did not know what else to do with me. That's so what do you think this, what do this real-time prescription monitoring service might do to prevent the sorts of harms that happen to you? Um, certainly I think that the powers that be, people that prescribe and give out this stuff, will know um, more clearly what people are using because it, 
my understanding is if it's real time, they'll know mm. exactly when, if John had this script yesterday or two the day before, and something can be done about <clears throat> giving out so much of them. But I think, for me, the really important thing is the amount of life I miss out on that 30-something years. And you're right, you, it's not a statistic. You can't put that into figures. So it's kind of like a lost... I don't know, I just wonder how many people out there are kind of lost as well. And not that I'm saying for an instant that I think these drugs are bad. I mean, they were good. They certainly were helpful, but to be addicted to them is a whole other story. I think that's a very important point, that for every death there must be another ten people going through the sort of experience that you're talking about that aren't recorded um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Rusty, look, thank you very, very much for your time. It's very generous of you to share your story, and let's hope, hope together this new service will reduce the risk of this happening to others. Mm, I do too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Thanks Rusty. Rusty. Cheers, bye. Bye. Ooh. Oh, sorry, Rusty, I just cut you off then by mistake. It just shows how <laughs> terrible I am with operating a panel. Um, thank you so much, Rusty. That was, uh, she really sort of uh, articulated that, you know, it's not about statistics. These are real stories, and statistics miss this kind of stuff. Rusty's an amazing person. I met her six years ago when she'd just come off these yeah. medications, and she now works with me in the teaching that I do. Uh, and it's all very well an old professional fart <laughs> like me standing up and telling yeah. people what they should do. But when <laughs> Rusty stands up there and tells her story and says, this is. What these drugs can do to people, it makes so much difference. She's talking to GPs about that. Yes. Training, in training. So we talk to qualified GPs, training GPs, and anyone else will listen. And, and is she involved in Scriptwise? Do you want to? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's an organisation which has been <coughs> calling for this real time prescription monitoring service for some time now, um, organisation called Scriptwise, and our patron is Heath Ledger's dad, Kim, uh, who's passionate about this yeah. because, of course, Heath died of a prescription medication overdose. It wasn't suicide, it was accidental, uh, and this is what's happened to so many of these kids. Mm. And people don't necessarily understand these deaths that are occurring from these drugs are uh, overwhelmingly accidental deaths, mm -hmm. people mixing up drugs and having accidental death through this uh, a cocktail of drugs. And Scriptwise has been looking to try and get this real-time prescription monitoring service in and suddenly, bang, here's some money here in Victoria. Well, right. two years away, you were saying, but yeah. here's bucks. It's the first commitment we've no, had from the state government to this program. Terrific. So, uh, Nick, what should somebody do if they... Ha if they have this kind of addiction to uh, prescription drugs or if you're a loved one of somebody who's got this kind of a problem, what's the, what kind of steps can you take? It's one of the things that uh, talking to the families of some of the people who've been through this has been an enormous sense of frustration. How do we deal mm. with this? Mm. Because they found it very, very hard. Mm. They've, uh, I mean, number one thing to do is to alert any doctor I know that my child, for instance, mm -hmm. is taking far too much of this stuff. Ring the doctor, mm -hmm. ring the pharmacist mm -hmm. and say, did you know that mm -hmm. they're getting multiple mm -hmm. prescriptions from different mm -hmm. places? Mm -hmm. One of the hard things is that all too often, sadly, the history has been the doctors don't take any notice of these calls mm -hmm. and that's been the frustration for people. But the number one thing is information mm -hmm. and that's part of what this program is about. Yeah. What about drug and alcohol services in uh, Melbourne? Where can you go to, to get some help if you think, look, now's the time I want to address this? So there are, there are regional drug and alcohol mm -hmm. services and if you look up online you'll find your local services. There are plenty of services around. The difficulty with this sort of medication misuse is that often the person using doesn't recognise yeah. I have a problem yeah. and it's getting past that first step. So maybe seeing your GP and just saying, look, this is what's happening, I, you know, I want to address it and 
I guess, some open discussion about where to go to next. As soon as someone recognises I've got a problem, go and talk to your health practitioner about it. Yep. No consent required from the patients. You're, you're in the system whether you want to be in it or not because of the danger to life. So under this new system, when it comes in, those medications will be monitored uh, with or without consent. Yeah. I thought you don't need consent. That's um, the point, I yeah, think, yeah. 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 Because of the danger to life, the CSM and the threat, you don't really need consent. So it won't be a question of asking people do you want to have, do you mind if i you know put you on the register uh, they're on the register right yeah. and, and a very important point this is not that these drugs are always bad yeah. so i don't want the message to come out that yes. somehow you shouldn't be taking these things there's a lot of sensible use of opiate there's a lot of sensible use of benzodiazepine this is about the massive overuse chaotic use can i tell you what for my first couple of years as an intern and as a resident i was terrified of prescribing benzos because all i got through medical school were these were terrible drugs they were terrible drugs they're addictive they're addictive i was really terrified. It only took me years before I realised, well, hang on, there's a good side and a bad Sorry side. Sorry about, about that, that's my fault. No, 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 it's your fault. <laughs> Were you also taught you had to check under the tongue when you give them to certain patients, particularly drug-seeking ones, because they, they, they won't swallow them, no, and then I... uh, spit them out and then sell them down the street. I... It's a, a serious risk, I think, of with a drug-seeking patient. Yeah. If, yeah. if you are going to give them one in your in the hospital or in your, in your surgery, you've got to make sure they actually swallow it. But I, but, I, but I think you're right. You should be terrified about prescribing these things. I had two new patients come and see me just last week, both of whom had been given endone when they were in hospital, neither of whom had had any warning about the risks of these drugs. And this is what happens all the time. Just not enough information given to people to make it safe. Thank you, Nick. Good segment. And I think that what you're talking about, Lex, is called cheeking when you cheek a mm. tablet. Most so, nurses know about it, though. Yeah. Speaking of cheeky, you'll be coming up next to talk with us about the Royal Australasian, what was it, Australian New Zealand, Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and the good stuff that they're doing for Doctor's Health. Three. Triple. You are talk- oh, you're talking about the College of Surgeons, yeah. Well, I'm not here to be an apologist for the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. <laughs> I knew it. Boys Club it. on Spring Street. I knew it. I knew it. Get I'm, um, twice again. I'm really here to say that um, at last something seems to be being done about bullying in theatre, mm-hmm. in theatres. I mean, they don't call operating theatres theatres for nothing. You get a lot of actors in those theatres. It's an opera. <laughs> it is an opera, correct. Um and hey, isn't it interesting? Sorry, I'm just going to stop you because, strangely enough, you do this to me all the time. <laughs> but isn't it interesting how you've moved from the operating theatre to the opera theatre as is. a lawyer? It is. And the consequences of stuffing that up are a lot less. Let me tell you. Are they? Well, you hit a flat note and nobody dies. <laughs> okay. Although the, the opera oh. singer could die. Um, in fact, I, I'll tell you another story that I've just been to Pavarotti's house, who was a great medical candidate for a discussion at some length. Uh, we think he lapped that. He did die, but you can, yeah, he had a lift to go up one floor. But anyway, we'll come. Okay. I won't talk about that okay. now. Okay. Anyway, Monash Health has a very bad record in the public and in the media for having um, having claims of bullying and harassment for junior. Uh, staff by senior staff and last year it led to um, the director of training uh, effectively I think being terminated she was it was announced that she was no longer working at Monash Health after an inquiry uh, was conducted into complaints by junior surgeons um, and the, the whole issue of bullying in the workplace I think was given even further impetus when a, um, a surgeon in New South Wales said if you're 
if you're a female doctor and you're put upon by a male colleague, you might as well just go along with it because your career could be damaged if you don't. I think that sort of brought the whole thing out into the open. Mm -hmm. So on the day after Anzac Day, it was a big week for signing things uh, last week, um, we had a, a, a Memorandum of Understanding signed between the Royal Australian College of Surgeons and Monash Health um, to uh, really build, respect and improve patient safety is the way it's described. But it, it's a commitment by the employer and the Royal Australian College of Surgeons to stamp out and, and really try and eliminate um, bullying in the workplace, particularly between surgeons. How do you do that? Well, um, there's a whole lot of key issues in this memorandum of understanding. This is the first one that the college has signed with a health service, but they're saying that it's the first of a number they intend to sign. Good on it. So, yeah, that's a good thing. And you've got to remember that the college is not the employer of these surgeons. Um, and, in fact, um, the college's initial response was, well, you know, don't come and complain to us if there's bad behaviour going on. We, we are simply the college. And, um, and in fact, it's very difficult to lose your membership of a college through bad behaviour. You might be struck off the medical roll, but you're not necessarily out of the college. But that's another story. Uh, I mean, it shows how silly the whole business is. But, anyway, the college has taken the bit between its teeth and sat down with Monash Health and really uh, announced this, what they call a partnership. So they are interfering, I guess, in a sense, with someone else's employees. And that's a good thing because, the, oh, as yeah. I say, the college was ha taking a hands-off approach previously. So some of the issues that the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, covers are information sharing. Um, so if there's information coming from the workplace about a particular surgeon... The, then um, it will be under this MOU, the, the employer will be communicating that to the college. Can the college then pass it on to the next employer? Well, um, within the law they can if it's an issue of, um, you know, again, the, the whole issue of harm. And if, if this particular individual is going to be causing harm, then that might well be the case. But it's really hang a on. matter of stamping hang out hang in hang the workplace, no, not the next... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Yeah. You pull me up on medical things all the time. Legally, if I bully you in triple R work, uh, in uh, which you're doing now, all the time, <laughs> only on air, um, and that goes to a higher authority like the college, and then well, it wouldn't, wouldn't go to the college. No, That's no, the point. No, but they could learn of it. They could learn of it through this MOU. Yeah, yes. through they will learn of it. But then, if I then go to another hospital, th is it not incumbent upon the po college to tell the other hospital about? No. It's not. They have no duty to do that. But if they had an MOU with but, another hospital, similar to the one with Monash Health... Oh, that they can... If they, they would got be sharing information. Oh, so you have to have an MOU with the college well, for the college to pass on information. Yeah, the college has no... Gotcha. Um, Kerry can talk about this better than me, more, much more qualified than me to talk about this, but the college has no duty. It's not a de facto APRA or a de facto medical board. Right. It's role is to in its job is to enroll surgeons uh when they meet the required qualifications i'm just i'm just trying to s understand the practical mm. implications of this MRI so so that's why i think the racs needs some praise for this because yeah. they didn't have to do this yeah good on them. um but of course they realized after the monish health case last year that the community does look to the college and say well you you know you might have an obligation but you know what you really ought to be doing something about this these are your members yeah. and they're floating around in the employment world and they might be at monash health today and at alfred health tomorrow or, or at queensland health next week what are you doing about it so so i think it's a very good thing that they're doing it um what they're they're also saying is that um they're going to be training surgical supervisors to ensure that surgical supervisors uh, are aware of their appropriate behaviour. So, I mean, do we know currently whether 
surgical supervisors are trained in in supervision? My understanding is they're not. They're, right. it, it's uh, it's in, it's the vibe. You, you, you just, know, you I did it, I did it, son. You, oh, <laughs> you know, it's all right, usually, son. You yeah. uh, just do what I do, and it's the same in the law. And yeah. I worked uh, twenty hour days. My friend, you can do the same. Too bad about your mental health. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. good enough for me, good enough for you. No, I'm just saying, because in the College of Psychiatrists, we get specific training for supervision. To be a supervisor? <laughs> yeah, to be a supervisor. I'm not aware of any supervisor training. Oh, okay. um, there might be some. But, but there is um, now. The, but this is, and this has been um, done in conjunction with Beyond Blue, who welcomed the, the initiative. It's great. Um, and, in fact, the, uh, there's an interesting uh, quote, I think, from Erwin Lowe, who's the um, medical director at uh, Monash Health, who's, who's basically saying that... Um, that uh, this is a way for doctors to to operate in a safe and supportive environment, particularly young doctors who, you know, might otherwise not feel that they have a future in, in health. Um, the quote is, Monash Health has pledged that no doctor will struggle in silence and this agreement with RACS will help us make that a reality. That's the Chief Medical Officer of Monash Health. So that's, that, that's they're great sentiments and... And a great response, I think, to the to the uh, controversy that dogged Monash Health last year. And this is but, uh, putting it in perspective. It's great. It's fantastic. It's just one college. What about other colleges? It's one hospital. One hospital, one Service. college. Correct. But there are other specialty colleges: College of Physicians, College of Psychiatrists, College of Pathologists, yeah. Radiologists. Da da da. But I think, to be fair, the the incidence of bullying, harassment appears to have been more prevalent in theatres, yeah. in operate, okay. and particularly yeah. in. Dare I say it? Neurosurgery. Yeah. Uh, that appears to have been a major area of uh, of conflict, and um, and I think tackling surgery would be a very good, obvious first place to start. Yep, yep. And, and Lex, you mentioned right at the start um, that advice that was given um, if if you are put upon by a colleague as a junior surgeon, you might as well succumb. Um, but if, put that in context. What was actually said was the system at the moment doesn't work in your favour. Um, it was not that this doctor was recommending that, mm. but what she was saying was the practical reality. That the way right. the system was previously was so badly administered that the risk of making complaints, of not going along with whatever the sexual advance was, p- potentially were a bigger risk than just getting on with it. You wouldn't get and, another job. And, and mm. she wasn't for any moment saying this was what people should do. Mm. She was really using it as an example of how bad the system was. Of nihilism. Was. And yeah, I wasn't exactly. wanting to imply that. In fact, what she was saying that for was to actually flush out this whole issue. Yeah, and that's exactly Absolutely what it's correct. done. Yeah, she wasn't recommending this as a course of action. She was mm. using it as an example of how bad the current system was. And mm. this is a st- step in the right direction to changing that. Mm. Yeah, so what are the practical issues? I know I keep harping on about practical stuff, um, Lex, but, you know, is it the same? Is it the anti-bullying um, programs we've got at, at well, schools? Well, it, the, the, there needs to be guidelines for employees about how you deal with bullying. And one of them has to be that you have a colleague who you can share that information with. Um, and it doesn't. Uh, sometimes it's better that the colleague is not your superior because you might feel it's someone you can relate to and relax with and not feel in any way this will cause you harm, as Nick was just saying, in your career or in your employability. Um, but, of course, with Monash Health now, they would say this is a no-fault system anymore and if you come to us, this is not going to impact on your career. We're going to treat this um, professionally and seriously. Um, so this does give young doctors an opportunity to trust the system. So it's an attitudinal change. there as evidence. Yeah, it's it's an attitudinal change, correct. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also happen to know that the College of Surgeons have got a conference in Brisbane this week and there is a big section on this topic. So that will be going nationally around all the surgeons about what's been happening and what's going to happen. I never thought I'd say this as a psychiatrist, but go College of Surgeons. And well I think done. some of the $600 million in APRA could well be used to fund programs like this. 600000 but country. you know, lawyers. Or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, APRA's, well, is, you know, he's got plenty of cash to splash to... To promote this oh, sort of activity. Splash, yeah. We've got to wind up. Thank you so much, Lex. Judy Carter, great news um, about the College of Surgeons. Thank you, uh, Dr. Nick Carr. Thank you, Nurse EpiPen. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kerry Breen. This is Radiotherapy. We're going to leave you with the scientists from Einstein and Gogo. A corker of a show. Look at them over there. They are champing at the bit. But we will catch up with you next Sunday morning for some more Radiotherapy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.